Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and I'm here to remind you that the Doctor seems to have a knack of getting himself into trouble. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about dealing with mortal peril but never losing your sense of humour as you do so. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time or you know your Pat Gorman from your forum doorman, you're welcome to this odyssey behind the scenes. And this time, we're taking a trip to the series' second story, and in many ways, where the series as we know and love it today actually began. So join me as I give you the who, what, when of Doctor Who, The Dead Planet. Or, to have to re-record one episode may be regarded as misfortune. To do it twice looks like carelessness. First broadcast on the 21st of December 1963, at a quarter past five in the evening. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Christopher Barry. The crew go to clean themselves up before setting off to explore the new world they have landed on, but as soon as they leave the console area, an instrument begins to warn of dangerous levels of radiation. The planet they have landed on seems petrified, ashen. Susan finds a perfectly preserved, delicate flower, and Barbara some kind of alien creature. A creature that, when it was alive, was made entirely of metal. They see a city in the distance, which the Doctor is determined to investigate, but the teachers refuse to do so. Someone not from the party frightens Susan by touching her, and so, Back to the ship the crew go, to enjoy some downtime by eating space food from the TARDIS's machine. The calm doesn't last, as the Doctor argues with the others about exploring the city, and eventually he agrees not to endanger them all, and to take off. But the ship doesn't work. The fluid link is broken, and he needs Mercury to operate it. Except he doesn't have any on board. Their only hope, fortunately, some would say, for the curious doctor is to go to the city to find some. It's early days in the show and the beginning of only the second adventure, but once again we're dealing with a momentous 25 minutes in TV history and one that boasts many parallels with the debut only four weeks ago of the entire series. Once again, the cast list boasts only the four regulars. Once again, the recording is deemed to be unbroadcastable. And once again, the episode's climax is one of the series' most iconic moments. So let's start with... The When. July the 2nd, 1963. The production schedule for Doctor Who is outlined until the end of the year. It has already been agreed that the second Doctor Who serial to enter production will be of a science fiction nature. 
The first story earmarked for this slot is Doctor Who and the Robots by Anthony Coburn. Rex Tucker is slotted in as director. Pre-filming is scheduled for the end of October, recording of the episode for the 15th of November, and broadcast earmarked for the 7th of December. Early July. A number of writers are sounded out about writing for this new science fiction series, including Malcolm Hulk, Peter Yeldon, Robert Banks Stewart, Alan Wakeman, John Bowen and Jeremy Bullmore, Barbara Harper, and Welsh writer Terry Nation. He is anything but keen. In fact, he's pretty insulted to have been asked to contribute to a children's series. 15th of July. Nation, working with maudlin, toby-jug-faced comedy genius Tony Hancock on a theatre run in Nottingham, is fired after a disagreement with the clown. Though they patch things up and remain friends, Nation makes his way back to London, and the only offer he has on the table is to submit ideas for this new children's science fiction serial called Doctor Who. So he works on a 26-page storyline entitled The Survivors. It's a title that will be used for one of the episodes of this story and that he'll keep in his back pocket and find again when doing his laundry a decade or so later. And if you've never seen Survivors, Nation's post-plague drama, and you're a Doctor Who fan, then there's a lot there for you to enjoy, including a guest appearance from Patrick Troughton and lots of grim deaths perpetrated by people in Aaron jumpers. However, that's for another time. This Survivors, a detailed storyline, 26 pages, and so 20 longer than required, really, is probably the last time Nation goes above and beyond the call of duty for Doctor Who. It impresses script editor David Whittaker and is very similar to the finished story, and its thorough preparedness stands it in good stead for imminent events. 18th of July. Serial 2 is still intended to be Doctor Who and the Robots and is scheduled to be recorded in Lime Grove Studio D with Tucker still on board to direct. 31st of July. Whittaker commissions Nation to write Doctor Who and the Mutants, a six-part serial on the strength of the storyline for the survivors, which he feels is a detailed and highly fancied storyline. This serial is allocated fourth place in transmission to be directed by Rex Tucker and intended for broadcast from March the 7th, 1964, 8th of August. Nation is progressing at a reassuring pace with his story and Verity Lambert agrees to extend the piece to seven episodes, which is felt will be a more suitable length. It is now called Beyond the Sun. There is talk of dropping the story back to fifth in the running order as the team are still desperately trying to squeeze in the story involving the travellers being reduced in size, one of the very earliest ideas mooted for the show, which causes no end of trouble before it finally makes it onto the screen near the end of the first production block. And even then, it still has trouble to cause. 28th of August, 1963. Nation has had an offer from comedian Eric Sykes to write additional material for his variety special, Wish You Were Here, and this is recorded today, which means that at some point between now and when we last checked in with him, 8th of August, he has polished off all seven episodes of the children's serial, whose appeal has now somewhat lost its luster thanks to a leading comic and an international jaunt summoning him. He basically runs out on Scaro for the appealing peaks of Helsinki. Doctor Who, something very appealing when freshly fired by Hancock, is now less appealing when freshly hired by Sykes. Nevertheless, what Nation submits is pretty much what ends up being recorded, so even working at insane speed and with his eyes looking elsewhere, he is producing work that is practicable.
16th of September, a revised schedule for Doctor Who's production is drawn up. Tucker is off the six-part Coburn serial 2, and Christopher Barry is now allocated, and, like Nation, somewhat unwillingly. This pesky children's series seems to be leaking personnel and enthusiasm. Head of department Sidney Newman, who had enjoyed freelancer Barry's work on a production on ABC the year before, Barry is not a BBC staff director, has recommended Barry. And like Nation, Barry isn't overburdened with offers when the job comes in, so he says yes. Shortly after this, and before Monday the 23rd, this schedule is amended by hand. Terry Nation's The Mutants, at seven parts, is brought forward to be the second Doctor Who story. Whitaker and Lambert have thoroughly enjoyed Nation's scripts and, vitally, they have been submitted quickly and in a shape that requires only minor rewrites. They are both somewhat demoralised when word comes from on high that the head of drama serials Donald Wilson and Sidney Newman himself hate the scripts, which contain the sort of science fiction monsters that are an anathema of what the show should be. Lambert stands her ground, however, arguing that the nature of the Daleks, nuclear survivors in shells, is more advanced an idea than her bosses are giving it credit for. She also stresses, however, that they simply have no choice. Nation scripts are the only ones ready to go. Coburn's robot idea has real problems, and John Lucarotti's journey to Cathay story about Marco Polo will take a bit longer to come in. 23rd of September. Nation story is now definitely to be second into production as, frankly, his are the only scripts that are any kind of ready and design work needs to begin now. 24th of September. Nation, now Whitaker's golden boy, is commissioned for another story, Doctor Who and the Red Fort, even though the Welshman still isn't especially excited about working on the children's show. The Red Fort is about events in May 1857 in Delhi, in which the uprisings in northern and central India against the British East India Company led to the first war of Indian independence. Nation's agent is still earning her money as his fee for this initially six, then seven-parter is negotiated up to £275 per episode, up £13 per episode from the £262 he gets per episode of the Daleks. 27th of September. Nation's Dalek scripts are signed off as ready for rehearsal, requiring only minor rewrites. Christopher Barry's schedule means he will not be available for all seven episodes of the story. He will be directing a production of Smuggler's Bay, based on J. Mead Faulkner's Moonfleet, which has pre-filming requirements that will drag Barry to Dorset for some of the Doctor Who story's production time. Smuggler's Bay, by the way, stars two actors called Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton, who'll be hanging around these ear parts in an era's time. Donald Wilson still wants experienced hand Barry at the helm of this important and complicated second adventure, and so novice director Richard Martin, who has been on hand during the development of Doctor Who, contributing some crazy ideas, is drafted in to cover the gaps left by Barry's absence. Martin has only directed one TV play up to this point, and so he is to trail Barry on the early episodes and then direct some himself. Martin's wife, actress Suzanne Neve, will be keeping an eye on Christopher Barry while he is away, as she has a regular role in Smuggler's Bay. 30th of September. A meeting is held in Verity Lambert's office with Lambert, associate producer Mervyn Pinfield, 
Christopher Barry, David Whitaker, Barry Newbury, lighting designer Jeff Shaw and secretary Susan Pugh. The discussion centres around what special effects required for the story can be achieved in the studio. Various suggestions are put forward regarding the design of the petrified forest, the underground city and the Dalek costume, and it is agreed that the designer, when allocated, should contact Christopher Barry at home as soon as he has read the scripts so that these matters can be settled as quickly as possible and designs drawn up in order that models can be made in time for the recording. Jeff Shaw discusses the lighting, the main concern of which is the unsuitability in terms of size, heat, lighting effects and camera of Lime Grove Studio D. The studio they are stuck with. In terms of size, Whitaker agrees to try to combine sets wherever practical in order to reduce space. A list is drawn up of the serial's special effects, which will do the rounds in subsequent discussions about which ones will be the responsibility of which department. Uh, some will be taken on by the, and I quote, visual aids department, and some will be achievable in the studio, possibly through the use of inlay. History tells us that the Dalek City is achieved this way. The findings are forwarded to Jack Kine and Richard Martin, amongst others, including the ultimate designer of the show. This has yet to be decided, although it is not to be Barry Newbery. He is simply there to make sure that someone from the department at least has some input at this stage. At around this time, staff designer Ridley Scott is assigned the serial. It has been decided that designers will also take care of any visual effects work for Doctor Who, as the visual effects department have declared that the series is going to be too effects heavy to rely on the input of the, um, effects department. Only at the BBC. October. A list of Doctor Who's first 53 episodes is assembled. The second serial, Serial B, is Nations, now referred to as Mutants forward slash Beyond the Sun. 11th of October. At this stage, some of the episode titles for the second serial, which is what it is currently called, Second Serial, differ from what they become. Episode 6, for example, is The Caves of Terror, and Episode 7 is The Execution. The story's broadcast has been delayed until the 21st of December, as the series' debut will now be, and will remain, the 23rd of November. Christopher Barry requests that an inlay machine and operator be booked for use on all seven episodes of this Dalek serial. 14th of October. The filming plans for the serial are underway, but Christopher Barry has some suggestions for extra filming shots which could be attempted. Whether they can be prepared in time for our session on the 28th of October to the 1st of November remains to be seen. But if not, perhaps further filming effort can be made available at a later date, as either Richard Martin or myself could be spared from rehearsal to direct it. As far as episode one is concerned, he requests an amendation to what has been suggested, flagging up the model shot of petrified forest as seen through the scanner with blower or wash effect clearing dust. For the Dalek city, he indicates that there will be several shots of this, including binocular masking closer shots. 17th of October. Lambert asks Head of Planning Aiton Whitaker if, due to the complicated technical nature of the serial, the sets could be erected the day before as a preset each recording day to ensure the much-needed 10.30am start on recording day.
18th of October. Christopher Barry has received the scripts and has read episodes 1 and 2. His observations for episode 1, relayed to David Whittaker, are that 1. More fear is needed from Barbara when she reacts to the news that they may not be on Earth at all. 2. A lot of the conversation about them not being on Earth is a bit too matter-of-fact. 3. Barry feels it is unlikely that he'll be able to have double doors in the city set and requests the dialogue be amended to refer to the screens beyond the arch. 4. On page 20, Susan, he says, is bright and gay again, despite saying on the very next page that she has lost her appetite, which Barry feels is a quick switch of mood from gloom to gaiety and back to gloom. It seems, says Barry, that Terry Nation feels that once he has told the audience something, the characters need no longer react to the situation. He is continually having them accept a situation in a most undramatic manner and therefore losing a lot of potential value. 21st of October. Christopher Barry receives an instruction, sent by his secretary, to send five copies of the camera script and three of the programmer's recorded paperwork to Verity Lambert's office. One camera script is for the transcription editor and the rest are for television enterprises. If the director does any creative editing to the recording, this needs to be marked as edited in the script within five days of recording. Warris Hussain's secretary receives the same instructions. 22nd of October. The production receives notice that Studio E Limegrove is being re-equipped and converted by engineers from the 2nd of November. This will generate noise and inconvenience, which will inevitably have an impact on rehearsals. Designer Raymond Cusick is given notice that he needs to go over the scripts very carefully and prepare his designs with some idea of the potential costs involved in realising them. He is warned that he will not be allocated the money and man-hours to achieve anything bar the most economical. 23rd of October. A meeting is held in room 305 of the scenery block to discuss the special effects costing and how many man-hours will be available for this complex technical production. Chaired by design organiser James Bould, the meeting's attendees are Verity Lambert, Pinfield, Cusick, Terence Cook, Christopher Barry, Richard Martin, production assistant Norman Stewart and head of the visual effects department Jack Kine. It is agreed that the production should not exceed 500 man-hours per episode and an approximate budget of £500. Man-hours are units measured based on the total number of hours various BBC employees will be expected to give to the production in order to realise it. Despite these averages, it is then agreed that episode 1 is a special case and it is given 1,125 man-hours, a special effects budget of £375 and a design department budget allocation of £900. In the meeting, each set and special effect are discussed in detail, with Cusick presenting his ideas which are, in most cases, then scaled down and simplified. The number of trees in the petrified forest is reduced, and the Dalek council chamber and instrument room are combined into one set, and certain special effects are cut, as are most of the statues required for the Dalek city. Scenic servicing have warned the production that they will refuse to store any sets or dressing if they are too large and will vet everything before accepting any of it. This is clearly a challenging production, and the team have been instructed to reduce the man-hours, as it is already over its allocation, 
and reduce the story by one set. The allocations given are as high as they can be, and Cusick is trusted not to exceed them. It is noted for the record that a meeting like this will be necessary for all future productions of this kind, and there is a conciliatory sheepishness about the conclusions of the three major players here. James Bould feels that We are placing Raymond Cusick in a difficult, if not embarrassing, position to produce what is required on the allocations agreed. As for Lambert, she regrets having to reduce Cusick to producing essentials, which give him no scope for design, whilst the designer himself states that his only worry is to make these things appear credible in the studio on such allocations. If the serial is to succeed, it must look credible. 28th of October. A week of film work commences on the serial. As the main cast rehearse The Forest of Fear, the third episode of the first serial, the first pictures begin to be captured for this one, the second, with just under a month to go before any audience catches their first glimpse of the TARDIS and its crew. Amongst the footage for The Dead Planet shot this week is the Mottle City, home of the Daleks. This has been built by Shawcraft, an independent effects firm responsible for making most of the props and monster costumes for the series at this point. However, designer Cusick is not happy. I wanted a complex structure of low metal towers, he said later. Ramps and spires, quite detailed. To my horror, they have reproduced my sketch to the letter. Everything I had drawn, but nothing more. So what had been intended as an example of part of a larger structure actually became the representation of the city as a whole far simpler than Cusick had envisaged, but by this time, too late to alter. 1st of November. Amongst the filming for today includes the printer reader of the fault locator that Susan consults, and also the shot of the forest seen on the TARDIS scanner this week, and indeed the end of last week's episode, The Firemaker. 7th of November. Costume supervisor Daphne Dare and makeup supervisor Elizabeth Betty Blattner receive a memo indicating the first rehearsal dates and times of the seven episodes of Serial B, with a note indicating that whilst episode one will start rehearsing at 10am, depending on how that goes, future instalments may begin at 10.30am. 11th of November. Rehearsals for the episode begin at the Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road in Hammersmith which is where all episodes of Doctor Who have been rehearsed up to this point. Rehearsals take place between Monday and Thursday from 10am to 5pm. 13th of November. Carol and Ford go shopping in order to buy shoes for Susan. 14th of November. On the last day of rehearsals, the regular cast get contracts for another 12 episodes, which, seeing as they currently aren't even contracted to the end of this serial, is pretty good news for everyone. During rehearsals, at Hartnell's suggestion, the character trait of the Doctor getting Ian's surname wrong becomes a thing. Note the moment he calls him Chesterfield, the first of many manglings perpetrated on the science teacher's name by the old time traveller, and one which is not in the rehearsal script. On the production side of things, this episode is due to cost £171 in terms of design department budget allocations, as opposed to the 373 estimated. However, Lambert receives warning that episode 2, with its Daleks and everything else, may well end up over the £1,000 that has been allocated for this kind of work on that episode. 
They in fact estimate 1,100 and wonder if the money that they look like they might be saving on episode 1 should be reallocated to episode 2. Initially, the allocations had been generalised at £200 per episode, but as the various specificities start to be worked out, these figures are juggled and redistributed, with episodes 1, because it creates and establishes things seen in later episodes, and 2, because of the Daleks, budgeted as the most expensive, episode 2 especially so. 15th of November. The Dead Planet is recorded between 8.30pm and 9.45pm at Lime Grove Studio D, a famously cramped studio with a bad shape and limited space, so not well suited to presenting the final frontier. The recording is preceded by an afternoon photo call of the regulars in the TARDIS set. Running through the episode throughout the day, they finally commit it to recording as intended between 8.30pm and 9.45pm. Only the four main actors are required, and the episode is in the can. But this is not the episode that you have seen, that was broadcast, or that is commercially available. In fact, only the very last seconds of this recording exist, or have been seen by anyone but a small handful. 18th of November. The part of the handful who has a thumb that can go up or down and thus decide the fate of the episode is Donald Wilson who views the instalment because the recording of The Dead Planet is beset with quite a profound amount of induction, an unfortunate side effect whereby the talk back from the production assistant's headphones can be heard in the programme itself. Wilson declares that the induction experienced is so bad as to make the recording unsuitable for transmission. And so once again it is decided that the first episode of a Doctor Who story needs a remount. There's no time to do it this week. The second episode of The Survivors is well underway. In week three, Christopher Barry is already scheduled to be away, and so it is decided to let that go ahead with Martin Helming as planned. And so The Dead Planet is rescheduled to be recorded in the week that the serial's fourth episode was due to be made. This has a knock-on effect for the contracts of the regular cast, which concerns Jacqueline Hill, who is hoping to be free for a film role should Doctor Who be cancelled but more immediately, it requires the hiring of the guest actors of this serial for an extra week, something that had also happened for the previous story. Booked guest artists are paid for a week for an episode they end up doing no work on at all. Nice work, or rather not much of it, if you can get it. 20th of November. Carol Ann Ford, unhappy with the blouse she wore in The Dead Planet, go shopping for another one in time for the recording of the second episode, so that when the first is remounted, she can have been wearing her preferred top, which means she can then have it for the rest of the story. Publicity photographs have been taken of the unused recording, and so Susan's original outfit, a one-piece with rolled-up sleeves and a folded polo neck, survives in photographic form for us to compare and contrast, should we be so inclined. And if you're listening to this, I suspect you are very much inclined, and there's nothing wrong with that. 25th of November. Verity Lambert sends a memo to her current team of directors, Barry, Warris Hussain, Paddy Russell and Richard Martin, to warn them that scenic projection equipment has not been block-booked for Doctor Who as a matter of course, and that if they feel they will need such equipment, then they will need to let her know as far in advance as possible. On the same day those directors... Bar Martin also receive advice from Mervyn Pinfield 
in the shape of a reminder that on the Monday after Friday's recording, they will need to personally ring the videotape supervisor, giving him the VT number for said recording and specifying which three minutes he should transfer onto 35mm film to be used as a recap for the following week's episode. 26th of November. Susan's shirt isn't the only serendipitous change. Cusick is able to rectify his misgivings about the Dalek city and, with the extra few weeks given to him by circumstance, he gets Shawcraft to remake the Dalek city and the larger, more sprawling edifice is put together in time for the remount. The new footage is shot today at Stage 2 at Ealing Film Studios. Again, there is photographic evidence of the first, should you like to have a bash at comparing and contrasting. 2nd of December. Rehearsals begin again for The Dead Planet, and the regular cast, the only actors required once again, get a whole week to reacquaint themselves with the script they performed less than a month earlier. However, the team have taken the opportunity to make some changes. 16th of December. There's an admin problem. An editing session had been booked for this day for episode 5, but when the dates were shuffled due to the reshoot, the editing day wasn't cancelled because the team decided to use it to do a little more work on episode 1. However, when the team arrive at the editing suite, as arranged at 6.30pm, they discover that the session has been cancelled after all. They nevertheless manage to wangle a start time an hour and a half later and finally complete work on episode 1. The team are pretty cross though, and so there is a full-scale inquiry at Editsville. Verity Lambert is consulted to see if anyone from her office cancelled the editing session, as that department claims, and she states, quite bluntly, that she did not. 19th of December. The re-record has caused a few accounting problems. Mrs Bradley in Television Accounts tries to get the team to let her know which episode needs to be charged the extra fees paid to artists who have been contracted for one week but will now work the following week instead, and so will be paid twice. After a bit of toing and froing, it is decided to charge all these extra costs to poor old episode one. 21st of December. The Dead Planet, running at 24 minutes and 22 seconds, is broadcast tonight at 5.15pm. Pity the cricketer Jack Hobbs, exemplar of his sport, and as referred to in classic science fiction thanks to a mention in Quatermass and the Pit, who died on this day before the episode was broadcast and therefore left this world just as the Daleks were about to enter it. Like Hobbs, whose nickname was The Master, by the way, elements of this series will score very highly and stick around for a very long time. Ratings-wise, its 6.9 million figure, 57th in the charts, is half a million up on last week's episode, The Firemaker, and its 59 audience appreciation score is marginally better than The Caveman Conclusion, which got 55. No one, however, has yet beaten an unearthly child score of 63. 1st of January 1964. Though this letter is dated 1963 as somebody hasn't got used to typing the new date yet, the Thal walk-ons need extra payments for episode 7 due to the knock-on of dates and these are going to be charged to episode 7. But Val Speyer, on the ball, if not the date, Verity Lambert's secretary puts a hold on this as her instinct is that Lambert will want these charges to be put against poor old episode 1. 
the what. The survivor's storyline, composed by Nation at his home after his sudden return from Nottingham, is, as mentioned, 26 pages in length. It begins, The planet is Scaro, the year 3000. Minus the radiation scare at the beginning, of course, the part of the story covering events in episode one is remarkably similar to what we get, including Susan's petrified flower. During the argument about whether they should explore the city, Nation says that in response to Doctor Who's stubbornness, Ian and Barbara preach to him about democratic rights and the wishes of the majority. The fluid required for the broken instrument is water rather than mercury. David Whittaker loved mercury, so we can safely assume that this was his suggestion. It is actually Barbara who unwittingly plays into Doctor Who's hands because she says there is bound to be water in the city. As for the city itself, the streets are roofed, the shops are filled with foodstuffs that crumble to the touch, the buildings are more modern than those they know on Earth, glass being widely used in design, everything is intact and undamaged, the floors and roadways are made from a metal material, there are no steps anywhere, only sloping ramps. Doctor Who is excited. They make their headquarters in what appears to be a public building. The Doctor makes them all split up and instructs them to look for books or whatever replaced books. He hopes to learn something of the history of the planet. The travellers arrange to meet back in an hour. We follow each of them, says the storyline, and we see something of their discoveries. One by one they return to their meeting place. First Susan and Ian, then Doctor Who, but no sign of Barbara. The history teacher is, as it happens, wandering through a hall of strange sculptures. The doors closing behind her and the camera spying on her are as we see them in the final episode, and she panics slightly as more and more corridors seem to lead to dead ends. While she is getting more terrified by her frustrating journey, the others discover a Geiger counter and happen upon the nuclear-slash-radiation threat element of the story. Doctor Who now feels unwell. Barbara reaches a fork in the corridor and hesitates whilst deciding which to follow. Behind her, a panel opens and a pair of grotesque arms move out to encircle her. The storyline isn't broken into episodes, but that's the place we will stop it for now, as it's the equivalent of the end of this episode, which takes place on the top of page 7 of the 26-page storyline. The scripts for the story, by the way, have no title on them. It is called Serial B, and then the individual episode title is given. The 16th September document which allocated Barry the serial has an augmentation added at a later date in which the serial is described as The Mutants. For the purposes of this broadcast, the story will be called The Daleks, and if that means I'm disbarred from certain areas of polite society, then so be it. The episode opens with a filmed reprise of the previous one, The Firemaker. The travellers are dirty, which means that in order to freshen up, they check the radiation ages before they venture outside. Sometimes the action from previous episodes will be remounted rather than played in from film, as it is here. But this is a short sequence that requires a totally different set of costumes and dirty makeup on the regulars, both of which would have to be removed, so it is more practical to snaffle the existing footage and use that instead, and start the regulars clean and fresh and in the episode's costumes. In the transmitted episode, the opening shots of the dead planet itself, taken in the studio, are overexposed, giving it a stark, negative, 
bas-relief effect, which fades during the first scene. Presumably, it would be too much to have the whole episode in this stark glow, and the reduction of it to normal suggests that perhaps the regular's eyes have got used to the glare, and therefore so too have we. Whatever, it's a clever way of having your cake, suggesting a blasted alien look, and eating it, not being lumbered with having to adjust the picture for every shot. Bas relief, or bar relief, by the way, is one of those words thrown into Doctor Who literature willy-nilly, so it's worth having the proper definition. It means sculptural relief, in which the projection from the surrounding surface is slight and no part of the modelled form is undercut. It comes from the French bas, for low, and relief, raised work. There's a wind machine. The close-up of Ian with the breeze rustling his hair is a cutaway to emphasise this point. It also, unfortunately, rustles the scenery backdrop, which is a curtain with a painting on it, done by scenic artists and based on a colour example provided by Cusick. The backdrop, of course, is there to provide depth to what is otherwise a rather small, if ingenious, jungle set. The bas relief is, in the camera script, supposed to fade out much later than it ultimately does. After Barbara's line about the branches being completely still, the effect was supposed to fade out slowly. As it is, though, it fades out pretty quickly after the Doctor's line half a page or so earlier when he talks about the earth being turned to sand and ashes. After Susan follows the Doctor off, there is a recording break to reset the cameras to normal after the adjustment required to achieve the bas-relief effect. The start of Ian and Barbara's exchange, where they ask where they are and he replies that he doesn't know, is a late addition to the script. Ian's later line, quoted at the top of this show, about the Doctor having a knack for getting himself into trouble, was originally a less colloquial, he seems to have a penchant for finding trouble. A lot of Ian's lines are naturalised a bit during rehearsal, as it happens, with the character's chipper and unstilted vocabulary clearly worked on by the mighty William Russell. There is then a cut, an exchange that was to have Barbara say, You're showing more concern for his welfare than he shows for ours. To which Ian was to reply, Believe me, my motives are not as noble as they sound. Until we're sure where we are, the Doctor is our only lifeline. The flower so gently held by Susan and then shattered by cack-handed Chesterton in the episode's saddest moment is made of sugar glass so that it can break like Susan's and the audience's heart, and the precious thing is destroyed. Uh, the flower, by the way, is pink. Susan's dialogue to Ian about what she will do with the flower once she has it in the ship is partly improvised, as Caroline Ford keeps talking until Jacqueline Hill cries out in terror at the sight of the Magnodon. Because, yes, the metal creature found by the crew is called the Magnodon, although it is not named on screen or in the script. The creature is four foot long, and after production, it resides for a time in Verity Lambert's office. It is described in the script as a hideous reptile-like creature, a creature that has until now only existed in nightmares. The original design plan for it suggests it should be the size of a beaver and should resemble an armadillo. Ian's line about the Magnodon being metal, even when it was alive, but that's impossible, was written originally as Barbara's, but Russell must have claimed it, or Hill given it away, or a bit of both, in rehearsal. Barbara asks Susan if they have anything on the ship that records journeys, and Susan says that there is a big bank of computers 
that if you feed them with the right sort of information, they can take over the controls of the ship and deliver you to any place you want to go. She gives much of the reason for the ship's erratic journey-making to the Doctor being forgetful. The first sight of the Dalek city is magnificent. It's a relatively straightforward inlay shot, but it is pulled off with a plomb. Showing the travellers on a ledge looking down at the sprawling Dalek metropolis is a fabulous thing of diabolical ingenuity. The edge of the mountain represents the edge of one masked-off camera's view, with the input from a photo caption, in this case the city, taking up the part of the screen that is masked off. That way, the regulars can be seen moving about and closer to us than the vast model shot, which is, Dougal, much further away. When the Doctor says that he will not leave until the city has been thoroughly investigated, he was originally to have an angry exchange with Barbara. She was to say, But you promised. And he was to say, Promised? This juvenile sense of honour appalls me. And then to himself, Promises. Ian giving the Doctor his glasses back at the end of the scene is not in the script and was worked out in rehearsal. The script describes the travellers trekking back to the TARDIS as them walking in Indian file, a now archaic and probably problematic term used to describe walking in single file. Etymologically, it refers to the belief that settlers had about Native Americans that they walk one behind the other on trails through forests. The forest set, by the way, is actually quite small and any scale is achieved thanks to clever angles and the aforementioned backdrops. The hand that touches Susan's shoulder, supposedly belonging to Alidon the Thal, who we won't meet for a couple of weeks, so it would have been pointless and expensive to use the actor who plays him, John Lee, actually belongs to assistant floor manager Michael Ferguson, who we will get to know well over the course of the next ten years or so of the programme. After she has tapped on the shoulder and screams, with the action cutting to her three colleagues, there is a recording break, with shooting picking up on Susan running after the cameras have been repositioned and Hartnell and Hill can take their places in the TARDIS set. And in that next scene, we get a nice example of the Doctor's slightly guarded, yet nevertheless very genuine relationship with Barbara, as he confides in her about Susan, and the teacher offers to have a word. It's a great moment, with lots going on between the two actors, with Hartnell displaying a bit of charm, which is necessary to cut through the Doctor's otherwise rather duplicitous contribution to the episode. The script actually here gives the direction that when the Doctor smiles at Barbara, we catch a glimpse of the Doctor's charm, which, although it may show itself rarely, is very considerable. The script also suggests that Ian should be revealed, hanging about by another part of the console, an interested observer in this exchange, but that doesn't happen, presumably for blocking reasons. A few chunks of dialogue from the exchange between Barbara and Susan are also cut. When Barbara is feeling ill, the doctor's line asking what the matter is and his comment that her headache must be irksome for her, as well as Ian's later hope that the medicine does her some good, are all late additions which cover or smooth out various other cuts to the script. Originally, Barbara wasn't just to come out with bacon and eggs as a request for food because Ian was to ask if they really are allowed anything in the world and the Doctor is to emphasise that yes, even something from their own world is permitted. Oh, and Barbara was actually to ask for eggs and bacon, not bacon and eggs. I know this is the stuff you're tuning in for. Uh, the algorithm to get bacon and eggs, by the way, was originally much longer. 
XL over 45 minus G W9 plus J62L6, which eventually loses everything by the last bit, probably after a <clears throat> polite suggestion from Mr Hartnell. The food machine was apparently Christopher Barry's idea, as he thought it important to illustrate any nagging questions the audience might have about the practicability of life on the ship. The TARDIS food machine also shows a production team keen to demonstrate the workings of the ship at a basic level, lest it seem too fantastical. Well, what do they eat and what happens if it breaks down, uh, see the fault locator, which I'm coming to, would be two pretty fundamental questions doubtful viewers might ask, and with plenty of time in an establishing episode of a long serial, we get to have a bit of fun with the food machine and the fault locator. The food machine produces lovely little wrapped food slabs, like mini cakes or chunks of cheese, but they taste like anything you want them to. The machine, according to the doctor, takes the component parts of foods and mixes them together according to what is required, rather like paints do with primary colours. As mentioned earlier, the code to input for bacon and eggs is J62L6, rather than, say, B&E, or a series of letters that might give you some kind of clue as to what you're ordering. So if you lose the menu, you're in trouble. Doctor Who's line about the bacon being English is an ad-lib from Hartnell, and suggests that the specifics of each foodstuff are actually programmed into the machine. It's difficult to tell what the food blocks are, and history has not recorded what they were in real life. They're very well wrapped in their foil, so they might be the inner part of some commercially available cake or bar with the outer wrapper removed, but they look like they might even be cheese. I don't know. Sorry. The only clue we have to what the food is is in the design planning document, which suggests that they will be achieved using two edible sweets in paper wrappings. The food machine, of course, isn't the only vital piece of equipment invoked in order to forestall any audience questions about life on the ship. We also have the fault locator. This is the first time the fault locator is mentioned, and it will, at some point in a future story, apparently cause William Hartnell some difficulty and cause him to ask Carol and Ford Susan to check the fornicator. But it's a lovely slice of nostalgic TARDIS, isn't it? Which will be a presence throughout the show's early years. And here it diagnoses that the problem with the TARDIS is the part of the control console, which turns out to be in the base, K7, where the Doctor's not very surreptitiously banjacks the fluid link in order to force the travellers to accompany him to the Dalek city, and an example of the first Doctor's Machiavellian, manipulative and downright dishonest side. A traveller whose thirst for knowledge and whose insatiable curiosity is certainly more of a trait than his empathy or care for the teachers, and indeed his granddaughter. No wonder he doesn't want to leave Ian and Barbara on Earth. Five minutes with him and social services would have been on the blower. The fault locator is actually mentioned in Anthony Coburn's script for the robots, so that could be another element he might claim to have invented, even though his robot script ended up unmade. Nation's Breakdown simply has the Doctor stripping down an instrument when the ship won't take off, after which he baffles the others with a flow of technical jargon. Just before takeoff and the introduction of the fault locator, Susan and Ian were supposed to say their lines, Susan imploring the Doctor, Ian telling the old man he can't endanger all their lives, the other way round. Presumably, these were swapped just to make things easier in terms of blocking and speaking. 
Once the locator has identified the fluid link as the problem and the doctor has pulled it out, highlighting its need for mercury and saying he doesn't have any on board, there was supposed to be an exchange between the old man and Ian in which the schoolteacher suggests plundering some from an old barometer or thermometer, which the doctor dismisses as a primitive idea. Mercury, he says, is far too useful to wait on mere technical gauges. After the doctor suggests leaving at first light, there's a slight camera pause to reset positions. Almost straight away, after the travellers leave the TARDIS, there is a recording break to move the cameras and to reset. Originally Barbara, not Ian, was to notice the radiation drugs first. Ian also doesn't advise anyone to move back as he checks the boxes safe in the script, in which he immediately identifies the files as drugs, which he doesn't do in the finished programme. When they reach the city, Christopher Barry's camera script asks for harsh contrast lighting. The script doesn't have Barbara finding another door and so prompting Ian to suggest splitting up. Instead, he just says it that they should do it anyway. This little addition for Barbara makes more sense of the splitting up business. The Daleks are from the planet Scaro, which we will revisit several times in Doctor Who's history, but not as often as you might think. And in fact, the first Doctor never returns here. Anyway, for now, this is our first trip there, and what we discover about it this week is that it's pretty dead. The superbly designed forest, full of unfamiliar shapes that do a great job suggesting vegetation whilst also being suitably unworldly and dancing in the background so that the places our familiar regulars stand never seem quite safe or benign. It's unsettling but compelling, convincing yet weird. The set design on Scaro City is another indicator of just how good Raymond Cusick is. The doors of the city are really squat and filmed from quite low too, which adds to the disorientation, especially as Barbara, confused and a bit nauseous, searches on her own in an unsettling sequence leading to the episode's amazing climax. She even touches the camera at one point as she's feeling her way about, which is marvellously unsettling and inventive. No concessions are made to the comfort of the actors as they duck through the Dalek-shaped doors, which recede into the background thanks to clever perspectives on the set. There's also a lovely painted backdrop of the city exterior. A lot of effort for one shot. See also the city itself, but that gets a few outings. The doors have Pac-Man drawn on them for some reason, lost in the mists of time, although the script does suggest strange shapes carved from white stone aligning the corridor. So yes, as mentioned before, the original designer assigned to this serial was a gentleman by the name of Ridley Scott, but it transpires that his other obligations mean that the pre-filming at the end of October at Ealing Studios will not be possible for him to make, and so another designer, Cusick, is assigned the whole serial rather than have disparate personnel involved. As it turns out, though, Jeremy Davis designs episode 6, so the one designer on the whole serial thing doesn't happen anyway. So, sadly, Scott who would in future become a director and helm Alien and Blade Runner and the Hovis commercials, never does get a credit on Doctor Who, which prevents fans like us basking in that glory and invoking his name should anyone say anything disparaging about the early days of the show. Cusick, however, will become a regular fixture on the programme for its first few years and one of the least enthusiastic commentators on DVD extras, no matter how jolly everyone in his mists tries to be. So we'll be hearing a lot about him in future instalments, but let's acknowledge here his design of the Daleks is a hell of a piece of work and one that would cause 
a big bone of contention between Cusick and Nation, and indeed, the BBC. When Ian and Susan and the Doctor meet up, Susan is just supposed to shake her head when asked about Barbara, but instead both she and Ian get lines about the history teacher not being back, just to make her absence a bit more dramatic. The Doctor was also supposed to have a line at the end of the scene, bemoaning the absence of that wretched girl. Although the design is very smart, the clever descending lift has more to do with the camera department, actually. A trick involving a descending shutter scene from the outside and then a camera judder and Jacqueline Hill reacting on the inside means that an absolutely stationary, motionless receptacle in real life becomes capable of movement, thanks to the magic of TV. The cliffhanger is a marvellous thing, thanks to the creepy camera work, the discombobulating soundtrack and the marvellousness on legs that is Jacqueline Hill. The script describes it thus. Barbara hears the sound behind her and turns in time to see the thing that is advancing on her. Only its arms are seen by the audience as they pin Barbara's arm to her side and she starts to scream. Production assistant Michael Ferguson, who will go on to be one of the show's best directors during its early years, operates the Dalek sucker that moves into view at the climax walking alongside the camera that closes in on Jacqueline Hill. And the camera, by the way, is operated by Brian White. So the first Dalek is called Brian and Michael. Terry Nation, thanks to being represented by Associated London Scripts, a formidable agency, is paid, as mentioned earlier, £262 per episode, which is a comparatively high fee. Coburn, for example was paid 225 per episode for the first story. £262, by the way, then, is the equivalent of about £4,672 today. The Who Elizabeth Blattner, Makeup Elizabeth Blattner was born in Cheshire in October 1914, the daughter of Ludwig Blattner, who had given his name to a sound recording system, the Blattnerphone, which was at one point used by the BBC, but later superseded. He had been a film producer in charge of the Ludwig Blattner Picture Corporation, but after the invention of talkie films, his business had collapsed and he faced financial ruin. Betty, as she was known, was in the news when, 21 years old and lying ill in hospital, where she'd been ensconced for months, with a severe stomach condition, the papers reported the suicide of her father and her obliviousness to it. The news was withheld from her for the sake of her health. She was eventually told the sad news, but only once doctors deemed it suitable. Her first BBC credit was in 1957, in Chloe Gibson's production of Kenilworth, and she remained with the same director's team for The Diary of Samuel Pepys, the infamous John Friend, The Secret Kingdom and Amelia in 1958, 59, 60 and 61 respectively. Her credits of most interest to listeners of this parish at around this time are most likely The Andromeda Breakthrough in 1962, the sequel to the successful A for Andromeda and one of the few pre-Doctor Who BBC attempts at science fiction, and The Old Curiosity Shop, directed by Joan Craft in 1962 and 63, for which she helped to transform Patrick Troughton very memorably into the character of Quilp, a metamorphosis so effective 
it is still remembered by many who saw it at the time and is considered one of the most remarkable achievements of Troughton's long and impressive career. In the months prior to journeying into time and space, Elizabeth Blattner supervised Epitaph for a Spy, directed for the BBC by Dorothea Brooking. For Doctor Who, she did the makeup on An Unearthly Child and the Daleks, but concurrent with the latter, she went up in the world, doing a high-end costume drama with Joan Craft's production of Martin Chuzzlewit, before returning to the Hooniverse by stepping in for Sonia Markham on episode 4 of The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Her final brush with the show involved her joining Sonia, her replacement on the series pretty much, to share duties on The Mythmakers. She had worked with its director, Michael Leaston-Smith, on Pagliacci in 1960. After a touch of opera, Billy Budd, in 1966, she seems to have left the BBC with her eye on the big screen, notably working on Lindsay Anderson's groundbreaking satire, If. She also did 1968's Curse of the Crimson Altar by Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, no less, and the same year worked for Hammer on three episodes of Journey into the Unknown, one of which, The Last Visitor, featuring Michael Craze and Geoffrey Bailden, if we're flagging Who connections, was used in the subsequent film compendium Journey into the Unknown. She rounded out the 1960s, working with two icons of the decade on Tony Richardson's Hamlet with Nicole Williamson as the Dane in 1969. She was still in the movies in the next decade, including the big screen entertaining Mr Sloan, but for sex comedies Eskimo Nell, Katie Manning's in that one, and Adventures of a Taxi Driver, she was credited as Liz Blattner. She had returned to the BBC for Sam and the River, a Swedish co-production, in 1975. Her brother Jerry became a producer, producing the BAFTA and Oscar-nominated and the Golden Globe-winning 1960 film The Sundowners. Jerry also lived next door to Simon Cowell's parents and gave the young mogul-to-be his first job in show business as a runner on The Shining. Because of the contributions of Ludwig and Jerry and Elizabeth to the industry, Blattner Close in Elstree was named after the family in the mid-1990s. Elizabeth Winifred Blattner, however, had died in London on the 13th of April, 1986, aged 71, and was at the time living in the same Abbey Road, yes, that Abbey Road flat, that she was living in 20 years earlier, when she worked for a short time on and in the very early days of Doctor Who. References Before I go, I need to acknowledge a debt to those doughty and diligent researchers whose work I've picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of the above. Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth, contains so much that is useful for timelines and cross-reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. And by golly, it's got some gorgeous pictures in it. Much of material therein is based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features from back in the day, and they also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes, and Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who, The Early Years, 
is a valuable and vital record of this period in the show's history, both in words and, oh, glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference as well. I walk in the shadows of giants, who doubtless spent their childhoods committing everything to memory because most of this wasn't written down anywhere. I'd also like to acknowledge the production notes on the gorgeous BBC DVD release of this story. And so that brings to a close our look at an episode that in many ways is the show's second first night, introducing the series to a different type of storytelling from the first, and one which will come to dominate the show. Verity Lambert fought for these scripts, and her defiance is ultimately rewarded by the viewers, and indeed history, and, to be fair, Sidney Newman, who conceded that she had been right all along. It's fair to say that if her combination of astuteness and courage of her convictions had not been there, then it's doubtful Doctor Who would have lasted. So Lambert must take enormous credit and be considered in her own way one of the creators of Doctor Who. She didn't just oversee the production, she shaped a legend. We know the Daleks now, but it's interesting how weird and strange the Dalek city seems on first viewing, something we can't really appreciate as much as those lucky initial viewers. Imagine how new this was and how strange. We haven't seen the Daleks, yet the door shapes give a clue to their squatness, their oblong shape, their difference. The silent, closing doors, the eavesdropping cameras, metallic, computerised life. The only life that moves in an otherwise petrified world. Our friends electric? Oh, and we started this journey far too hurriedly to make any calculations. Not the first, and certainly not the last time for Doctor Who, either in front of or behind the camera. Doctor Who, The Dead Planet, Featured title music by Ron Grainer and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Incidental music by Tristram Carey. Story editor was David Whittaker. The designer, Raymond P. Cusick. And the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next. OK, so there are these things. They're called Daleks. Until next time, a sink plunger was just a sink plunger. No playgrounds were drenched in the sound of a genocidal war cry that was suddenly become acceptable scary fun and no smart Alec had ever done the stairs joke. But all that is about to change. Next time on Doctor Who Too Much Information. Doctor Who Too Much Information The Dead Planet was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock, with thanks to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly, Graham Kibble-White, and Charles Norton. 
and thanks to subscribers on the aforementioned Patreon, who include Mark Trevor Owen, Ruben Herfindahl, Neil Tate, Phil Chapman, Thomas Banks, Richard Alt, Alex Rohan, Paul Carnahan, Jacob Lumley, John Pettigrew, Matthew Kilburn, Phil Pascoe, Matt Sawyer, Paula Reynolds, Matt Dale, Peter Burns, Gavin Ware, Gavin McLean, John McClay, Jeremiah O'Connor, Andrew Lester, Robin Groen, Susan Harrison, Liam Price, James Miller, David Spofford, Darren Rule, Paul Cornell, David Hughes, Richard Patey, Jonathan Potter, Nigel Bromley, Nick Tedston, Scott Pride, Robert Davis, Mark Keating, and Chris Fone. The serious consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music for this podcast has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that is exclusive to patrons. It's ultra geeky, and so it needn't be considered essential information, but I do have to hold something back as I get used to this Patreon podcast self-funding, self-producing melange. And this stuff does take quite a lot of time to put together, you know, and I do it all by myself. You can probably tell. Currently, there are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot, the first episode, and a delve into the first four scripts written for the show, all of them for episode one, all with subtle differences illustrating what we could have had, including a really horrible Ian. There are accompanying show notes and pictures. There's Alice Frick, there's Donald Bull, there's the all of the Coal Hill school kids. And it's all at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Support is possible from as little as £3 a month. And actually, if you sign up for a year, there's a 10% discount on top of even that. And you get early releases, exclusive releases, access, even a badge, depending on what tier you are on. But it's generally fairly egalitarian and one size fits all. If you would like to do a one-off contribution, you could go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Uh, that's fairly easy to follow and again anything donated there is hugely appreciated but i know times are tough and i know we don't pay for entertainment anymore and that's fine i understand the way the world works and to be perfectly honest with you i'm just flabbergasted and overjoyed anyone is prepared to listen to anything that i do and if you are and if you enjoy it please it'll cost you nothing to rate this podcast five stars that really really helps with my algorithms and they're getting a bit knackered around the edges and if you can leave a little positive review as well that that really is of incalculable value and very very much appreciated these podcasts have their own twitter feed at haydoke podcasts i have my own youtube channel where you can get video versions of some of the things that i do it's early stages but i'm working on things over there as well and i can be seen live at excess malarkey comedy club every tuesday in manchester after lockdown is over we're beginning the live shows again on july the 13th prior to that the shows will be online on twitch.tv 
forward slash excess malarkey where there's also an archive of loads of comedy stuff that we've done during the pandemic So whatever you choose or whatever you can do, join me, please, for the next episode, The Survivors, or Playgrounds Will Never Be the Same Again.